Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 75 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Charles Bertin and I play bass. You do. You play a lot of your bass that I hear you play is actually visual. <laughs> I see you on YouTube <laughs> um, more than I more than I hear you more often than not. Um, 500,000 followers, I guess we call them, subscribers, 41 million views of your videos and some of the most incredible jaw-dropping inspiring bass playing uh that i've seen in forever so great job there charles thanks <laughs> i'm crushing the youtube yeah no. <laughs> yeah no yeah youtube has been going pretty well recently yeah so let's talk a little bit about uh well let's start with youtube what what attracted you to it what made you think this could work when did you start realizing this is working and people are interested in this um well, I first started my YouTube channel a while ago. I think it was 2013, something like that. Um, and at that time, you know, uh, I was mainly just kind of throwing up videos of my originals. Um, I wasn't really taking it that seriously as, you know, a career or anything like that. Um, I was more focused on playing live shows and stuff like that. Um, so I was, you know, I didn't really see very much traction when I first started YouTube. Um, and I also didn't have a clue how like the algorithms works and all of that kind of thing. Um, and then, I, you know, I got a little bit frustrated with it because I was, I started putting a lot more effort into the videos, but wasn't really getting any more results. Like the views were still pretty low. I was seeing other bass players who are getting loads of views on YouTube. Um, and I was just like, I don't understand like why I'm not seeing any results basically. Um, and so I kind of started focusing more on just playing live, um, and kind of stopped uploading on YouTube for about a year. Um, when I was just trying to play live shows and build up my live following. Um, and then when it really started taking off a lot more was when, You've probably seen uh, Davey 504 on YouTube, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the camera's Davey 504. Yeah. Um, so he hired me on Fiverr. Um, you know, he does that. He goes on Fiverr and hires people to do crazy things. And so one day I just got this order on Fiverr that was just like, um, can you play the hardest bass solo you possibly can or something like that? <laughs> and his username on Fiverr was something like not Davey 504 or something like that. So, <laughs> so I was like, yeah. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to be in a Davey video. Um, so I put a lot of effort into it. Cause I was like this video, I might get seen by like 3 million people or something with this video. And I did that. And he, you know, shouted me out. He was like, that was one of my favorite ones. Um, and when he shouted me out, 
um, I realized that I had an amazing opportunity because now people were actually interested in my channel and I started trying to capitalize on it. I, you know, made another video that was like combining my bass solo with his bass solo and that got loads of views. And then he eventually like challenged me to a bass battle. We did a bass battle and he told everyone to go and subscribe to my channel. That got me like a hundred thousand subscribers in two days or something. Wow. Yeah. And so basically at that point I was like, okay, I have to just go all out on YouTube because mm -hmm. like, this is just such an amazing opportunity out of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and I just started like trying to make as many videos as I could. I started putting out two videos a week, like one every three or four days. Um, and it was a massive shift because I had gone from kind of being off YouTube to suddenly that was like my main thing. And I still had gigs and things books, but I was just like, I need to, I need to just make this like sudden shift to YouTube. <laughs> so when was that Charles? When, did that, when was that when Davies sent you the, the Fiverr thing? What year was that? Um, that was not long ago. That was, uh, I'm trying to remember it's it was like, August 2019. Oh, so yeah, that's that's really recent. Okay, wow. Yeah, it was like a year and a half. Yeah. So for those who don't know, Davey 504 has, I just looked, that's why I was popping over there. It's like 8.9 million subscribers. Yeah. I So here's my thing. I had not heard of Davey 504. I, I hadn't heard of him. And a friend of mine was like, well, obviously with your base podcast, you must know who Davey 504 is. And I'm like, no. And I have a background in digital media and YouTube and all that. So when I discovered Davey 504, it wasn't that long ago, blown away by how many people are following him and blown away by how he takes this concept of YouTube culture and what people expect, especially younger people, I guess, with YouTube videos but the focus is on the electric bass, which seems very absurd. Like that would not garner a following of close to 9 million people. And yet yeah. it's super popular. I'm going to guess now that I'm telling the story that that's probably how I was introduced to you as well. And then seeing that you have, you know, half a million and it's growing and people are excited by it. Um, but it's not the type of videos where you're just soloing or just recording a song or just showing people how to play. It's a show. What, what you're doing, what Davey 504 is doing is a show based on the culture of YouTube that is jokes. It is meme based. It is, it, it's, it's very different than what people who may not have heard of you, Charles think when they hear you have a YouTube channel and you're a bass player. So mm. Explain a little bit about conceptually what you're trying to do creatively as a creator on YouTube, because it's not just about playing a fast solo, which you do really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I think when I first, when, you know, Davey kind of got me involved with his channel, it made me realize, because then I focused a lot more on his channel, which I hadn't done as much before. Um, and it made me realize that, um, people do want that mixture. They like in order to make bass or something like bass, which is pretty niche, more of some, you know, <laughs> just a little, yeah, a little yeah. niche what we're doing right yeah. now, Charles, you and I. Yeah. Exactly. Um, in order to make that appealing to more people, it can't just be playing. It can't just be like, you know, a two minute video, just playing some original that you've made, which is what I did 
all the time before and it wasn't really getting that much attention. Um, but when you kind of have it with, you know, the jokes and just making it more of a show, like you said, it makes it more digestible, I think, to people who aren't already crazy about bass. And it like it gets people more interested in this pretty niche field. Yeah. But do you feel schizophrenic in a certain aspect? Because one side is it's no joke. You are an amazing player, probably one of the freshest, more, more interesting people that I get to see play. But on the other side, you're a creator and you're a YouTuber and you're in this culture of PewDiePie pops in like all these other figures that are in that ether. And you as a creative person have to think, what am I trying to do in this video? Am I just trying to get likes and people to subscribe? Or am I trying to get people to be passionate to buy, you know, you've got a new album out called Epiphany. Like, how do you think about it in your brain when you're trying to do something? It's definitely a balancing act uh, because, you know, YouTube has an algorithm. It's pretty, um, it can be pretty punishing, <laughs> YouTube algorithm. You kind of do have to think about things like likes and views because, you know, if you make a video which doesn't have a certain watch time, for example, YouTube just doesn't show it to your subscribers. People who literally subscribe to your channel, it like, it won't show it to them because it will just like deem it a less interesting video than other people that they subscribe to. So it's definitely a balancing act between, you know, trying to sort of appease the YouTube algorithm and still create high quality content that I feel like is actually fulfilling for me to create. Because I think if you go too much one way or the other, like if I just focus on likes and views, I would kind of just start creating content that I don't really love creating because I do love playing bass and I do love music and, but it's, you know, you can sometimes get caught up in the views and like trying to make it as like appealing to a wide audience as possible. Well, it's easy to be, I don't use the word cheap, but it's easy mm -hmm. to make jokes or do things that you know will generate that like versus what you're trying to do artistically, which again, when I see Davey 504, he feels more like a caricature than he does a musician who's trying to use the channel to build the music side of things. I feel like he's trying to build more of the entertainment side of it, which is great. It's just, everyone's got their own path here. I was just curious yeah. what your path was and your thinking. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've spent so much time, I've spent so much time practicing and improving my, craft and just trying to be like the best bass player I can and just make music that inspires people. And I, I do think that, you know, Dave, I, I think Dave and I have a little bit different goals. Yeah. Um, I think he is trying to position himself more as an entertainer, um, which is obviously great. Like that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, yeah, he's brilliant. I mean, he's hilarious. It's, it's great to watch. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's totally entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've always just felt, you know, a deep love for music. Um, and I can't imagine my channel ever not being pretty focused on the actual playing and the composition and that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you get surprised by this is how it worked? I mean, we're going to get into your origin story because I'm super fascinated in you as a human being. 
but you know, you're based in Boston. Now you went to Berkeley. Uh, you are a phenomenal player. And I'm guessing when you go through a system like Berkeley, you're thinking, which sessions am I going to get on? Which live gigs, which solo albums, which bands might I join? I don't think the immediate thought is I'm going to be big on YouTube. And that's going to be an actual really viable, financially good path to be on because it really is for you. Yeah, no, I definitely, this is not what I foresaw myself doing when I first came to Berkeley. Like I definitely had much more of the traditional model in my head. Like, you know, I would play either in bands or solo, um, but basically just, you know, play smaller venues, work up to bigger and bigger venues and eventually be playing like huge sold out theaters or arenas or whatever, you know? Um, and I tried to do that for a while and it, 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 you know, things have changed so much. Like the online world just seems to be where things are happening at the moment. And I think at Berkeley, actually, a lot of the professors there, um, still kind of have the traditional model in their mind too. And so no one was telling me to like go and, you know, put all my videos on YouTube, like right. Right. not really, like some people were to some extent, but no one seemed to be saying like, you know, this is what you have to do to make it as a musician now. Were you in Berkeley? When did you finish up with Berkeley? I finished, it was, I want to say spring 2017 or around that time. Yeah. So the YouTube stuff really happened well past that. It wasn't like you were at Berkeley shooting stuff in your dorm or anything like that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I did some of that, but yeah, it wasn't getting any attention at that point. Yeah. So let's do your origin story. Um, you don't sound like you're from Boston. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a bit about, I know that you started off on piano. How young were you? Where were you living? What, what's, what's, what was your journey to discovering the instrument? The bass. Um, so I started, so the first instrument I learned was piano and that's when I was, I started lessons, I think when I was seven, something like that. Um, and he was, you know, pretty classical stuff. Um, yeah, just learning from kind of like the standard classical books that you learn when you're first starting piano. Um, and then the first time I so I started playing bass when I was 11, 11 or 12. Who introduces uh, you to that instrument? The electric bass or was it double bass? Yeah, okay. electric bass. Um, it was funny, actually. I had I knew I wanted to play in a band because piano, I was all just playing solo classical stuff. I knew I wanted to try an instrument where I play in a band or, or some kind of ensemble. And... You know, I, I was, I'd started getting into rock at that point. Specifically, I started really loving Metallica right around that time. I went through a phase where I was obsessed with Metallica. Um, we all did. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, and like, I think it's because they're like kind of a little bit classical sounding sometimes yeah. um, when they get their harmonies going in thirds and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, so I knew I wanted to be in a rock band and I had friends who played guitar, drums, even a singer. Um, and no one was playing bass and for some reason bass was this like cool, mysterious instrument. And I was just like, I don't even really know what a bass looks like or sounds like, you know, relative. I just thought, yeah, I just didn't really know what it was. And I sort of 
did a little bit of research into it and just kind of thought it would, I would be different if I played bass and I would be able to be the bassist in bands who don't have a bassist and things like that. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how I ended up getting into bass. And then I had a teacher at school. Um, and again, we were just kind of working through kind of standard material in England. They have this thing called like rock school, which is basically like there's these books. I think it's called rock school. It was so long ago is, um, these books and it's like grades one to eight and you take an exam at the end and then you get a little certificate. So I did like all of the grades one through eight while I was in high school. And then that's, and then after that is when I went to Berkeley. You know, if if you're 11, you're in grade four. Right. I mean, what what do you, you're listening to Metallica in grade four. Like who's, who is around you that is influencing you in such a way that's like Metallica electric bass. It just seems bizarre. I've got kids that age. They're not, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, I remember the first time I remember certain moments kind of in my musical journey. And one of them is when I saw Metallica on it was something like MTV, like a channel like that. I saw song one by Metallica and I saw the like crazy guitar solo. He's tapping actually, which is kind of funny now. Exactly. I was just like, that's awesome. And that's kind of like the moment where I wanted to play rock music. That's amazing. Yeah. And so yeah. I, how are your friends reacting to you? Like, what are they saying when you're spending all this time in your shed, you know, playing, playing your bass your, in your home, wherever you are doing your thing? Do people think you're weird or people like this is really cool? Do you have, are you showing an innate talent at that young age? Was it a process for you? Like, how do you reflect on that as a player and where you were at? Um, I was, yeah, so in high school, I was definitely, um, you know, people could, kind of see that I was like progressing more quickly. Um, and I mean, yeah, I wasn't practicing that seriously yet in high school, but when I went to Berkeley, I had me you and know, my teacher there, Jim Stinnett basically got me practicing like crazy. And some, yeah, definitely some people were just like, okay, why are you spending like all your free time practicing? Like, is this actually beneficial? Like, is it actually any better to practice this much than like what other people are doing? And my, you know, Jim just kept telling me like, why not? He's just like, why not just practice as much as you can right now while you're at Berkeley? He said, you're never going to have any more free time than you have right now. So you might as well just get as good as you can. And that, that just made perfect sense to me. And I hadn't really had anyone say it to me that specifically and that explicitly. So we're, t- we're like, time jumping a little bit, but you're in high school in the UK and yeah. then what is that? Grade 13 for you or grade you 12 mean, when you graduate high school? Yeah. Um, I mean, we call it completely different things. Yeah. We, I know. That's in, why. In, yeah. In England it's called, um, <laughs> well, especially, yeah, it varies a bit by school, but in England, the last year of my high school, it's called upper sixth. So there's lower sixth and upper sixth. Okay. So yeah. 
is this a conversation with your parents about, I'm going to go across the pond, I'm going to go to Berkeley, I'm going to study music? Are they like, oh my God, he's never going to make, like, you know, when parents hear that their kids want to be a musician, it's one thing. When they do it post-secondary, it's it's serious. I mean, this is a moment mm-hmm. in time where you could be becoming a doctor, a lawyer, an economist, I don't know what. Um, what, yeah. what was that? Was there a conversation? Were they really into this idea? So... The way it kind of happened was, so first year went on this summer program and that was, I think, you know, kind of like a test basically. And I actually, I was doing a physics degree in England. Um, and so I stopped to the physics degree in England. Um, and you know, my parents, they were supportive. They, I don't think they ever told me to not do it, but they did make me think about it. They, side they, it's, like, it's a side yeah, yeah. It's like, you should do this. And like eyes roll right. in another direction. Yeah. Right. They definitely, you know, they definitely said like, you know, think, think about it basically. Like <laughs> they, they kind of said like, you know, do, because I did one year of the physics degree in England and they said like, okay, just do the year and then see how you feel. And after that year, you know, I'd still been practicing a lot and stuff. And I just thought like, this just, seems to be what my passion is. Yeah. Were you good at physics or was it a bad scene? Um, I feel like anyone who in their first year of physics realizes how much worse they actually are than they thought. Um, cause high school physics versus undergraduate physics is a completely different thing. And, um, so it was hard basically like I, you know, I wasn't failing or anything. Um, but it was really hard and, I was fine at it. You know, I'm fairly mathematical, I think. Um, but I was never passionate about it. Like I was, I never wanted to spend extra time, you know, becoming as knowledgeable as I possibly could or anything like that. Whereas that is what I do with music. So what was it like when you got to Berkeley? Um, I studied music post-secondary here in Canada and at the time, there was, you know, two or three of us that were doing electric bass as our primary instrument. Mm. And there was definitely two or three of them that were way better than me. Out <laughs> of that, a lot. Or so at least that's yeah. how I felt. And you're going to Berkeley, which is world-class Steve Bailey, and the, whole, the whole curriculum yeah. there with the teachers, including um, Jim, who you worked with. Was it intimidating for you or like, I got this? Was it a thing where people saw you play and they were just like, can you play in our band? Like, what was that experience like for you? It was definitely, there were definitely some intimidating moments because, um, you know, I had very little jazz experience um, and Berkeley is pretty heavy on jazz. Um, I remember the first time I ever played a jazz lead sheet was at Berkeley. And they just like put a lead sheet in front of me, you know, it's just chord symbols. And I'd only ever played music like from written notation or tab. Um, and so when they did that, you're like, all right, one, two, three, four. And it's just like all these chord symbols. And I'm just like, what do I play? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there were definitely some moments like that where it just made me realize like how little experience I had with jazz and stuff like that. And then there were definitely some classes as well where I, you know, I was in like an advanced jazz improvisation class and I could just tell that there were a few students in the class who've been playing jazz since they were like three years old. And this is all just like so easy for them. Whereas it was all like foreign concepts to yeah. me. 
Um, but like my teacher definitely helps a lot with that Jim. He like, um, he definitely just kept saying to me, like, you don't even have to know all of the most advanced possible music theory. And it's much more about, you know, practicing your instrument and just developing your technique and things like that. And I guess he kind of just took my focus away from other people and just made me focus more on my own development, which I think was really good. So talk about, I mean, one of the things you're known for is this two-handed tapping, which there's a lot of avenues I want to talk about with this, but Jim Stinnett from, from Berkeley introduced you to it you had worked on it too, because what inevitably happens, we're going to do a spoiler alert here is you, you wrote, you co-author a book called two handed tapping with him, yeah. which again, if you're, if you're studying music, it's not often the, the teacher and the student then publish a book. So, mm-hmm. so what was happening with that? Was, was it you playing stuff, him introducing you? What did you think you could do with it? Because in and of itself, two handed tapping on the bass, it's more of a solo play than it is something you really see in everyday music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, basically I had done a little bit of tapping, you know, I'd sort of dabbled in it. I think most plays, most bass players dabble a little bit in tapping at some point. Yeah. Um, especially if you're listening to Metallica, you're going you're gonna, to, right. you're going to hit it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think in pretty early on in one of our earlier lessons, I, uh, just played something that I'd learned. I think it was, I think I'd learned a little bit of Victor Wooten's um, Overjoyed, if you know that one. Um, and so he realized that I had an interest in it and um, he just encouraged me a lot with it. I think he knew that I had a piano background, um, which is really great for tapping because uh, it's a lot of the same skills, like yeah. hand independence and things like that. Um, so he just really encouraged me with it, which was unusual i think a lot of bass teachers would basically say like tapping isn't going to get you gigs you know <laughs> right it's probably not the area to focus on yeah exactly but he basically just kind of said like seems like you know you're passionate about it and that you have some natural talent with it so we focused a lot on tapping like that was probably one of the main things that we focused on and yeah i just started learning so he has a whole book of etudes for bass you know technical compositions and he said just learn all of those but tap them instead of finger style and and then eventually i started writing my own stuff and that's when we made the book together the magic of tapping i feel for people who don't understand what's happening on the instrument because there's a real physicality to it there's mm. a strength in the hands and fingers that is very different from just bass playing and i think you're right that piano has a certain aspect of what you need, but when it switches to the bass, the I see your hands are really strong. Like to me, it looks like you can crack walk, you know, coconuts with your bare hands. <laughs> it looks really subtle when you're playing it, but to somebody who understands the physicality of the instrument, it's a very uh, physical thing to do, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's definitely. It's it looks it looks easier than it is because you have to be a lot more accurate than you would be on piano. Like, cause you're basically, you know, you're pushing down a thin string as opposed to like, you know, an inch thick key or something. Well, and also the neck isn't fixed. I mean, it's moving too. So it's, right. it's not yeah. really, 
in the in the perfect way this as a piano is. Yeah, exactly. And you know, yeah, the frets are changing size and things like that. Yeah. Um, and it is definitely physically more tiring than piano. Um, so yeah, you've just got to do a lot of exercises at first, strengthen your fingers and stuff like that. Yeah. Now, clearly when you transfer that to something like YouTube, it becomes a jaw dropper. People are used to seeing somebody play, whether it's a pick or fingers. And then all of a sudden it becomes this crazy, like as Davey 504 might say, what, you know, it's like, what's going on here? This is crazy. Yeah, it feels to me almost a little bit like a magic trick, right? It's something you can do in that that takes it to a whole other level that creates that feeling of it's magic. Mm. Do, yeah. do, do you see what I'm saying? Or yeah, no, I do. Yeah, because it's it's yeah, it's like visually very interesting, and it, yeah, it yeah. kind of like unlocks a new ability in the bass. Yeah, it's it's fun to watch whenever someone does it well as the, as a transition that's the moment that's most exciting. It's like a real adrenaline thing. You feel mm. it, you feel it as the listener or the, or the viewer for sure. Yeah. Um, speaking of tapping, it's hard not to think of tapping and not think of Eddie Van Halen who passed away last year, which was really traumatic for me. It's one of the reasons I got into music and still love music is, is just the playing the style of Van Halen. The music of Van Halen was a huge influence on me. Yeah. I was unsurprised that you had done uh, eruption. <laughs> um, yeah. But I had, I took great joy in sharing it with friends. Yeah. Because it's something you wouldn't expect. Like, of course you can't play eruption on bass. And sure enough, even the title of the video made me go, I gotta, I can't wait to watch this type of thing. Right. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about what was happening at that? It's a tough thing to do. I mean, it's one thing to do as a tribute when, when Eddie Van Halen dies, it's another thing to just put that all aside and go, I'm going to play eruption on bass. Just sounds stupid out of the gates. If you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think someone had, I think someone had commented that as a suggestion eruption. And I I remember, you know, I'd obviously heard eruption. Um, but then I kind of like listened to it again and I was just like, is, is this going to sound any good on bass? Right. You know, <laughs> can uh, you do this? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, you know, that was one of those songs where I just started learning it and then kind of, you know, a little bit into the process of learning it. I did genuinely think like, maybe this is not actually going to, you know, maybe I should just like abandon this because it sounds so different on bass. It sounds so, especially the beginning, where it's kind of him like improving. It's it's almost like an improvisation at the beginning. It sounds so much more like dark or something mm. on bass. Um, and I was wondering, like, does this sound ugly on bass? But then I don't think it does. It it just sounds. It's just so cool though. This bass doing it. It's like. I've, it's always cool to do something that no one expects on a bass. Um, and that's, yeah, I, f- I feel like it just kind of fits that song too. It's just like a crazy all out improv. Yeah. <laughs> so Charles, how much of your day is spent just sitting there practicing? Um, it's at least half, you know, my sort of work time is on, yeah, practicing and recording. Sometimes those two things are almost the same because it's like 
I just practice over and over again and then record like immediately. Um, but yeah, it's probably like at least half my time. And then the rest of my time is, you know, editing the video and recording myself talking and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of things I want to talk about in that then. Okay. So is practicing a formal thing? You have certain scales or pieces you're working on. Is it a free form trying to write your own music? Is it you thinking what can be a good YouTube video? Is it all of those things? What does practicing mean to you? At the moment, my practicing is a lot more focused on the YouTube videos. It's it's basically, you know, I the main stuff I do now is I figure out what will be a good YouTube video and then, you know, decide whatever the material is. Like, I've got my next video is going to be crazy violin solos played on bass. So I just like, <laughs> so at the moment I'm practicing a load of violin solos on bass. Um, and that's what I'm focusing on right now. Cause you know, suddenly the YouTube stuff has just got so much momentum. Right. What, what I used to practice, I used to do way more exercises and, um, the stuff I used to do with gym, I, I, I used to do so many exercises around the cycle of fourths. Um, yeah. Um, which is just, you know, all the keys basically. Um, and I did a lot of scales, arpeggios and etudes, you know, those technical compositions, um, and also transcribed loads of stuff by ear, you know, just jazz solos. I, I transcribed like some Coltrane and some of Jacko's stuff by ear. I don't, but that kind of stuff, I don't do it as much now because I'm more, it, it seems like a good, efficient way to practice where I'm practicing stuff for my next video. And it's so challenging anyway. Yeah. Like it's, it's, I'm just kind of like combining, you know, development with YouTube creation. It's like I'm learning difficult stuff and then putting it on YouTube. So it's kind of hits both worlds there. What's your publishing schedule like? How often do you publish a new video or do you have a set schedule? How does it work for you? Um, I try and publish like about every five days. I feel like that's a pretty good balance between, you know, working, <laughs> working myself to death and actually, you know, having some time for myself. Um, so, yeah, what, about once every five days seems to be a pretty good sweet spot. And I don't really have too much of a, I don't plan too far in advance. I might start planning a little bit further in advance right now because it can sometimes get pretty down to the wire. Um, but it is nice having the flexibility, you know, if sometimes Davey puts up a video and because I haven't planned months in advance, I can like react to it immediately. Right, right. Like yeah. <laughs> Which are always fun. So yeah. What does a team look like for you? Are you everything that I see on YouTube or are there other people behind the scenes who help you? There's a lot of editing. There's a lot of cutting. Uh, you're very funny. You're very entertaining. It's not just the playing. There's there's stuff going on there. Do you script it? What's, what's, what is a YouTube video like that we don't see on the, on the back end, the production side? Yeah, well, um, the only sort of, you know, outsourcing that I do is... Uh, my fiance does the thumbnails. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, thumbnails are actually like very yeah. important. Yeah. And they're a pain too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so she does the thumbnails, which is great. Um, 
everything else I do, I do uh, all the editing and all of that kind of stuff. I film myself. I don't have any like camera people or anything. Um, and for now, it's, it's fine. Um, I feel like if I were to outsource one thing, it would probably be the video editing. That can be very time consuming. I was going to say that people don't realize for every minute it's over an hour of editing. It's a lot of work to get there. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe, you know, once, you know, once I've got more used to this whole thing, I might, um, I might outsource editing at some point. Um, and then, yeah, I do often script my videos, especially the longer ones. Um, I do often, yeah, kind of just like come up with stuff that I think is going to help people understand what's happening and some funny little things I can put in there and stuff like that. Yeah. What people don't understand about YouTube, because people might see it as kind of a joke or silly or goofy, is it's the same as getting reps when you practice. Like it's a really good skill set to be able to know how to look into a camera, speak well, be funny, understand what a great edit is. These are really good skills for a business person, for a communications person. They're great. Yeah. I think especially in today's environment where, you know, video content is such a big thing, but you know, all companies, like not even just music, but like, you know, yeah. Video marketing and stuff like that is just such a huge thing. And yeah, it's definitely a good skill. So I know people might be curious. I know I often am. Is there a living to be made for this? Is it about just the videos and the ads? Is it about the merch? Is it about selling the music? What? How, are you making a living at this point from YouTube? What do you see it as? Is it the primary thing? How do you see it as a business? Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, so I'm making a living from YouTube. Um, and it is definitely my main thing right now. Um, and I think it will be probably for a while at least. Um, but yeah, it's kind of everything. It's like, you know, you've got ads that automatically happen on your videos. Um, and assuming, you know, you need a kind of a big following to actually make any significant revenue from ads. I've had absolutely nothing in the first few years. Yeah. Um, even, even with half a million subs, it's not easy. It's still work. No, exactly. And then, yeah, you know, I sell CDs. I have my book that I sell. Um, Spotify is the same thing on Spotify. Like you need a lot of streams to be, (laughs) to really actually be making money from it. And and did you find like, I mean, that was one of the things that I think about when I think of you and Davey 504 is the audience, the, the person who also buys the stuff. Sometimes it feels really different. Like I feel like I would be buying the book, but I'm probably not, your, your demo in terms of like the show and what people watch. Do you, do you know mm, what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Do you find that? Yeah. 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 I think, um, the, well, there's definitely, I feel like there's kind of subsets of, you know, any YouTuber's audience and definitely my audience. Like I feel like I've definitely got, you know, some hardcore fans who, you know, will watch every single video. They want to buy my CD. They want to buy my book and, all that type of thing. And then there's definitely like the more casual fans who might only watch like the funny videos or they might only watch, um, just the video that like goes viral or something. And you kind of have to like have something for everyone, um, in order to you know, keep that going. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's crazy to see. So yeah. when you think about, 
base and videos and YouTube and people trying to promote themselves. And I want you to put aside what, what you do because you've, you've sort of reached a different level than most people. Are there things that like, what makes a great video for you? When, if, if I were to say, hey, I want to start a YouTube channel, what makes a great video? What, what do you think it is? Um, are, you, are you talking just music or just any YouTube video? In this world, yeah. Let's, let's talk about just any, for sure. Yeah. Let's, let's start there. Well, I think, you know, a great YouTube video, it needs, it, yeah, it needs to either, it needs to fulfill some kind of need, obviously. Like, it needs to teach someone something or it needs to entertain or inform um and i think it can vary like they are definitely it needs to obviously be very engaging that's i think where i was kind of um maybe lacking before was that i would just like put up an original and not really think about the viewer experience very much um and so it like the, the kind of videos that end up doing well on YouTube are often like the lists, like the top 10, like top 10 best baselines or, you know, top 10, whatever, or like how to do this in seven steps. So like bite-sized chunks often work really well on YouTube because it kind of, when someone's watching it, they feel like they're like making progress through the video. Yeah, It's yeah. like, they're like, oh, okay, now, now I'm on step five. Nice. Like I'm halfway through <laughs> and you know, um, yeah, I love when Scott, like Scott, so- Scott Devine does the, uh, my favorite thing that he does is he'll do like the five times Victor Wooten went beast mode and he'll just yeah. do that. Like with, <laughs> he'll do it like Billy Sheehan or whoever else. And I, I, I admit like, I'm just a sucker. Those are just the right words and the right combination with the right length that makes me go. I'm all in like whoever it is. I want to see anybody go beast mode. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it like, it makes you think of, it makes you, like think about the video. Like, it makes you like imagine Vicks wouldn't go beast mode. And they're like, all right, I want to see that, you know? <laughs> it's funny how... Scott says hi. Well, I was going to say, just, Scott says hi. Yeah. <laughs> to you, I was going to yeah. tell you the same thing. I have a note oh, yeah. that Scott, <laughs> Scott says hi. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, I'm curious also about the role of you being a younger person playing bass and being a YouTube celebrity. And what I mean by that is I do a lot of public speaking on large stages with a lot of corporations talking about digital and technology. And one of the final stories I talk about is Norman's rare guitars and how, how successful they've been on YouTube, which is a phenomenal story as, as you, as you are as well. And my, my, my struggle to get to why there's a great resolution is that in this day and age, young people don't really play guitar or bass. If they want to make music to get laid, they, make some beats and upload them to SoundCloud or TikTok. That right. that was the problem of Gibson and Fender and all these companies. Now, clearly, since we had COVID-19, people started learning to play guitar and learning to play bass. But there was a shift in young people's attitude of what it means to be a musician. And then getting to know you and getting to know Davey 504 and following it, one of the things that struck me is the fact that you're actually getting people to care about the bass, which is twofold interesting one is in general people don't care about the bass that's the guitar the drums the singer but also just getting people who physically don't think of an instrument to learn how to play music they just go on to garage band or create a beat have you yeah. thought about how many people think about the bass or care about it now because you're making these videos that are fun and awesome yeah definitely and 
that was actually something I thought was really interesting when I first started looking deeper into Davy's channel was I had always been a little bit disenchanted with just the music scene in general and um, the fact that at these you know live shows that I was playing, I was finding it hard to find an audience and you know connect with people who just loved my bass playing um, and just you know seemed like instrumentalists. Um, and so I do think about that and like I am definitely trying to get people into bass and that's something that Davey is definitely doing. Like I, I once spoke to him, you know, just on Instagram or something and I was asking him if, I think I was like going to do some battle with someone and we were going to like talk about Davey and stuff and <laughs> I was asking him like, do you, do you think that's going to be, do you think that's okay? Like, you know, like, is, are you okay with us? Like, talking about you and kind of like doing a battle like in your kind of style with like all the drama and everything and he was just like yeah he basically just said like yeah like i just want i just want as many people as possible to like find out about bass and like get excited about bass and like i think that's so cool because it seems like the saying that Davey has like 9 million subscribers and and his channel is all about bass which is just like seems like such a niche thing yeah that's, yeah that's <laughs> I mean that's exactly what really attracted me to wanting to have a conversation with you is that there's to me you feel like the new guard right yeah exactly and like that's great like it's it's so easy to just get caught up and be negative and think like oh everyone's just going to be playing electronic music like 10 years from now. And I'm not, uh, nothing wrong with electronic music, but it's just like people playing instruments. I just hope that never goes away. And I'm glad that it seems like my channel is helping with that. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time. So last area I'm curious about is one is I mentioned a couple of times you have a new album out called Epiphany. You've had two other solo albums, new age based solo and don't look back at the same time. Um, you, you know, we talk about niche, there's like niche and bass, and then there's bass solo, which is like, I think we're in like the niche of the niche at that point, people who appreciate this type of music. And for me, it was one of the main reasons why I was super excited to do this podcast, because sure, when I was there, there were people like Billy Sheehan and Jacko and people like that. But when I came back to, to following the instrument from a music perspective, you know, from six strings to, to effects, to tapping, to just the level of players because of YouTube and Instagram and all this stuff, it blew me away. So I'm curious about how you think about life, not just as a bass player, but pushing it even further into this idea that you're, you truly are a bass soloist. Mm. How does that feel for you as a musician? Is that exactly what you want to be doing? Yeah, well... When I first heard solo bass was uh, Victor Wooten, Overjoyed, sure. and I remember listening to it and just thinking it was just, you know, incredibly beautiful sound. And it just made me wonder, like, you know, why is this not more of a thing? Like, why are there not more people who are playing bass in this way? Why are there not more people who love this music? Because I absolutely loved it. and. I don't think my 
taste is like so weird that I can be the only person who loves this. It is possible. <laughs> just so you know, it is possible though, right? It's like, right. I, it's like when I first started listening to Michael Manry, which was one of the artists that, that got me back. Yeah. I did realize that I can't be the only one and it's true. We're not, but it is pretty niche. I mean, it is, <laughs> right. you know, yeah. weird, weird bass solo music is a pretty niche thing. It still is. But you're right. Yeah. Like the feeling of I can't be the only one who think, who finds this music so beautiful. Right. Exactly. And and so I, I kind of I kind of like where I am now, basically, because it's like they're not there's hardly any people who are kind of, you know, doing solo bass, obviously. And so that actually feels like quite a comfortable position for me because it just means that I'm more unique. And I think being unique is a very valuable thing, especially in music where there can be so much competition. Um, and so, yeah, I, I kind of like it. I kind of like where I am right now. Yeah. And, and the fact that you figured out with YouTube too, Charles, makes it even more interesting and unique and fascinating. I can't thank you enough for your time. I was really amazing to connect with you and hear your story like i said I, before getting ready for this i was i was trying to snoop around i couldn't really find much about you besides your own website so <laughs> i always love when i get a chance to uncover that origin story can you let people know where they can subscribe to your youtube channel find out more about you stuff like that yeah so um subscribe to my youtube channel you can just you know you can just go to youtube.com slash my name charles b-e-r-t-h-o-u-d um, or you can just type in my name on YouTube and, you know, I'll come up. There's not many other Charles Beartooth on YouTube. Yeah, so you're pretty unique in the name too. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, yeah. Or if you wanted to find out more about me, um, my website, charlesbeartooth.com. Basically, if you type my name in anywhere, it'll come up with me because there's not many other people with my name. That's great. Charles, thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thanks so much. This was fun. Uh,